Welcome to Hooplecast. I'm your host, Matt, and joining me are my newbie co-hosts... Carol. Matt. Mel. And we're a bunch of Hoopleheads. No guests today. No one wanted to join us to talk about this episode. I... Are we all offended? We should all be very offended. Everybody's on my kill list again. <laughs> Good. I'm, I'm just, I'm kind of amazed because this one is one of, it really stood out from all the rest that, you know, we've seen to me. Yeah, a lot happened in this one. A lot of silliness yeah. uh, and a lot of disturbing things too. <laughs> yeah, a Mel, lot. Mel, your kill list, you take it out, you put it away. You take it out, you put it away. <laughs> you know, it's annoying. Like, I don't know what to do with it. Maybe I should just tack it to the wall. And there are some people we haven't heard from all season. I'm thinking specifically of Dr. Moira. <gasps> oh. This would have been a good one for her because she's always bicycling. Oh, <laughs> this is true. She could have it imparted her knowledge of uh, cycling. But yes. has she ever ridden a bone shaker? I don't know. I would want to read a bone... Or read, <laughs> ride a bone shaker. You want to ride a bone shaker? <laughs> yes! <laughs> Phrasing. <laughs> I know that sounds awful. <laughs> I, this this finally made me understand what why you would have a bicycle built that way. Why? Because the, the thought of when they were when they were talking about uh, going through the muck or whatever they use not muck um, the muck I've I've got it here in my notes somewhere but um, that big wheel would be less likely to get caught in in things like, you know, holes and stuff like that. Seems like, anyway. Seems so much more dangerous, though. You're up so much higher than a regular bicycle. <laughs> I feel like if you fall off, you're probably going to break an ankle. <laughs> well, you're, you're going to end up in the mud anyway. So. Yeah. Well, so it's not like there's you're riding on pavement like you are now. Matt, please tell me, please tell me that today, today's Reader's Theater is about bicycles, please. It's not about bicycles, yeah. but I do have I do have some bone shaker facts. <laughs> oh, cool. Which we're going to talk about, uh, about the difficulty in navigating with that bicycle. But before actually we get to Reader's Theater, I've been a real hooplehead, and <gasps> I forgot to read Nutty's feedback for How the previous you? two episodes, though I think she sent in the last one late. Wow. Or this, the number, episode six, she said in late. So anyway, I'm going to read them fairly quickly. They're, they're rather short, so it shouldn't take too long. And here okay. I was about to kill her. <laughs> it's all your fault. <laughs> I'm sure you, isn't, you told me you already killed her. Oh, whoops. <laughs> <laughs> no well, then I guess I don't have to read this. <laughs> but you know what? In honor of her memory, then, I'm going to read, uh, read both of them. The first one's for episode six of this season, Something Very Expensive, Nutty Writes. Dang, that got dark. I'm really worried about Joni. She's a good person, and things don't look good for her. Mr. W is a psychopath. Someone still needs to kill Cy. Poor Merrick. I doubt they brought dogs. And in that case, poor Mrs. Bullock. I feel bad for her. She's trying so hard to make the marriage work, but is stuck with Seth. Liking Saul more and feel bad he's stuck with Seth. I'm starting to agree with Trixie when it comes to Seth. Well, a lot of Seth hate right in the first couple sentences here. Yeah. Ellsworth and Trixie, so cute. I love their discussion and love when he asks if Alma would have him. He's so cute. Charlie Mm -hmm. is great, but we knew that. The general really helped calm down that horse incident. I like him a lot. Then for the next one, E.B. was left out. Nutty writes, Al's conversation with Merrick was great. It's out of respect for him that Al talks to him and how he got through with... And how he got through with him was priceless. Charlie is so sweet. How he handles Joni is the best. 
Not so easy to keep a secret when you beat on Mr. W, but I was cheering him on while he did it. Give it up for Jewel poking fun at Al for dragging his leg. <laughs> How is Cy so successful when his lackeys are so stupid? I know Johnny is no Mensa member, but he's better than both of Cy's guys. And Al has Dan. Did I see that right? Sophia has a doll that looks like Alma? Mm-hmm. Does she? Oh, that's weird. I should have gone back and looked. I, I don't think so. Hmm. I thought she was blonde. Oh, well, maybe I'm wrong. That'd be kind of creepy. That would be creepy. She sticks pins in it. <laughs> I hate you because I never get to leave this fucking hotel room. I'm so <laughs> bored. That was one of my notes this episode was Sophia must be so bored. Yeah. yeah. She doesn't even get to go out and watch the big bicycle shenanigans. I know it's yeah. weird. But at the same time, it's better than uh, being in an orphanage somewhere and scrubbing floors and, True. you know. Or ending I mean, up one of Al's prostitutes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah, they would have turned him out at that age. Nutty continues, Eb is so burned to not be involved in the drama. I think Al wants Trixie to learn math as much as he wants her to get him information. Who beat up Jane? This makes me not happy. Mm. Oh, sorry again for not reading that uh, during the actual episodes, Nutty. Hopefully she'll forgive you. I hope so. Well, she's dead now, in so heaven, it doesn't in matter. Heaven. <laughs> she'll forgive you in heaven. Yeah. <laughs> As for today's Reader's Theater, sadly not about bicycles, but it is about Charlie Utter. Ooh, interesting. And Charlie's been, uh, he's been all over these last couple episodes, so this is a, a, this is a good one to play, and it came, it came to us from Viv, who is one of the co-hosts of Beyond the Wall, a Game of Thrones podcast, and I really appreciate that she recorded this for us. I will play it now. The following news items appeared in the Black Hills Daily Times, September 21st, 1877, February 8th, 1879, and June 21st, 1879. The attention of the court was occupied all day with the case of Territory versus Charles Utter, indicted for maintaining a nuisance in keeping a dance house in Leeds City. Trial by jury, found guilty as charged in the indictment with a recommendation to the mercy of the court. We stepped into Bover's shaving saloon yesterday and found John busy pursuing a copy of Shakespeare. He evidently has forsaken the law for the drama, and with better success, it is hoped. A large force of carpenters are now employed on the brick block, which is almost ready to receive the finishing touches in the way of a roof, etc. The Sazerac Lying Club of Virginia City, Nevada, is to have a branch club in lead. A prominent member of the bar is spoken of as the president, with Dan Costello as critic. Charlie Utter made his appearance on the streets yesterday under cover of an immense sombrero. (laughs) His friends twitted him about it, and he replied that none but Western men had anything like style about them. The inscription on the headboard of Wild Bill's grave has become a great curiosity among people outside of the hills, and many of the pilgrims pay the cemetery a visit before returning east and copy it. There were three engaged in this work yesterday afternoon at the same time. For the information of our Eastern readers, we're subjoined the inscription just as it appears on the board as follows. Wild Bill, J.B. Hickok, killed by the assassin, Jack McCall, in Deadwood, Black Hills, August 2nd, 1876. Pard, we will meet again in the happy hunting ground to part no more. Goodbye, Colorado Charlie, C.H. Utter. Oh, I like that. His part. friends tweeted him. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. Twitted. Twitted meaning teased. I what's, know. What's the what's what's up with the Sazerac Lion Club? I am glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, this, there was a book. There was a book published in 1878 by Fred Hart and it was called The Sazerac Lion Club. Oh. And he writes in the book, This purports to be a book on lies and lying, but it does not treat of the lies of politicians, stockbrokers, newspaper men, authors, and others who lie for money. Neither does it touch on the untruths of scandal, mischief, or malice, but only on those lies which amuse, instruct, and elevate without harm. It is a record of lies told in a club known as the Sazerac Lying Club, whose objects, as its name implies, are lying. A chapter is devoted to the rise, progress, and history of this club interspersed with these lies. So it's basically a club for telling tall tales? That's what it sounds like, yeah. yeah. What it sounds like to me, yeah. Didn't you say, Carol, that there's a, what you call it, the Society of Historical Inaccuracies or something? Oh, uh, the Society of Creative Anachronisms. There you go. The SCA, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I would imagine that this is sort of similar, just a, probably a gentleman's club. Obviously, no no women allowed, and they probably <laughs> oh. sit around, drink, and tall tell tall tales. And someone wrote them down and put them in a book. And uh, you can find a copy of this book; it's in the public domain. But some people have printed copies of it. Uh, couldn't find really too much about it. I found the whole book online. I read through parts of it. Very very racist. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprising. Yeah. Not surprising. Society for Creative Anachronisms, just so you know, isn't really like that, but it's got it's got the same kind of sense of humor. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of um, kind of dressing up um, in medieval clothes and taking on like a character. It's kind of like LARPing, or maybe it's Louis almost before LARPing, because <laughs> uh, it's been around for a really long time. What do you think about Charlie and his giant sombrero? <laughs> I want to see it. Yes. Oh, but I wouldn't want to see him doing the walk of shame, like trying to hide under a sombrero <laughs> because he lost a court case. <laughs> what? I, so he owned a dance club? That's interesting. Yeah, he must have. That's yeah. Apparently it was not, uh, it was either not a licensed dance club or it was an, it was the kind of dance club that was illegal licensed or not um i i suppose that uh back in the day though people probably did like a lot of they probably had several jobs you know mm-hmm. yeah. yeah you that had to be a man, man of all uh all trades or whatever i'll read this description of the real charlie utter charlie utter aka colorado charlie sometimes wagoneer scout trapper prospector and partner of the famous mr hickok is a manager of the establishment in such rough company he cuts a most unusual figure one observer notes of this small man his long yellow hair falls over his shoulders in ringlets his yellow mustache was long and the ends wax and his goatee was of the most elegant description Standing out against Utter's immaculate black coat and white shirt, his shirt studs were gold nuggets about the size and shape of peanuts. His watch chain was made of various sized gold coins linked together. His well-oiled locks were surmounted by an elegant sombrero of marvelous breadth of brim. He was a good specimen of a frontier dandy. Wow. It is said that his eccentricities extended to allowing no one to egress to his tent and to bathing every day. But any man who rode with Hickok and was a veteran fighter of the heathen was not to be trifled with. Hmm. He bathed every day? Good for him. (laughs) Very unusual at the time. No wonder he was considered a dandy. Mm. Yeah, good for him. Um, So I suppose that they decided against the sombrero in the TV show because it would be hard to 
catch someone's face under a gigantic sombrero. <laughs> Not they, only that, I mean, totally different, you totally know, kind different. Of wardrobe or look mm-hmm. or anything. Hair. Actually, the, the look sounds probably they looked at it and said, "Well, he sounds too much like Hickok." Maybe That's possible, yeah. As far as the hair and the goatee and the mustache and all, also weird, just weird. <laughs> Lots- <laughs> people, you know, people in that time out west, you know, they were a lot of them were. There was a reason they were out there and not, you know, in the cities and stuff. They, they were weirdos. <laughs> a lot of them were, you know, they wanted to do their own stuff, and they were. You know, that, that whole rugged individualism thing. Yeah, they yeah. didn't feel, maybe they didn't feel like the, they belonged anywhere, but. Yeah, they didn't really the outside, fit in. Yeah. Was, you know. Hmm, interesting. This is episode 20, Childish Things, written by Regina Corrado, directed by Tim Van Patten, original air date April 24th, 2005. It is daytime. Al Al and Seth are in the gem saloon. Al thinks Seth has a trustworthy mug and he should enlist allies in Helena to put forth the idea of annexation to Montana or drum up support from the camp to form a new state or republic. Basically anything to keep Yankton from ass-fucking them. Why is Montana better than Dakota? I I got the feeling it was mostly just to keep everybody off balance, and and to make Dakota value them more if they think they're going to lose them. Yeah. Because they they've got a you know a ton of gold there. So and Montana, you know, they might they might have some pull in Montana or something. But I got the feeling it was just to keep keep uh the Yankton people from from taking him for granted and keep him off balance. That and Yankton seems to have a really bad reputation for stealing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Though I doubt the white people in Montana are really that much better. I'm sure yeah, if they had I'm sure if they have like reparation funds to dispense to the Indians, they'd take their share too. Oh yeah. I have no doubt that they did. Mm-hmm. Wolcott is writing a letter to Hearst. The mines are not operating 24 hours a day as they have no Chinese laborers, but the Cornish and Germans are working during the day. The workers are showered after each shift to collect gold flakes they may have hidden in their hair. <laughs> Traps under the wash house collect the gold. A large man named Captain Turner is particularly adept at recovering stolen gold, and we see a man bent over, gold removed from his anus, and as he flees, the captain shoots him dead. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen a naked man get shot. <laughs> oh, that's a first for you, is it? I think. Mm. It was hilarious. <laughs> it was hilarious. Really? <laughs> that poor man. Not if it happened in real life. It probably did. I know. Oh, no doubt it did. Yeah. I'm sure it probably did. You're a jerk. <laughs> no, no thoughts on the scene of the of the men in the shower. <laughs> well, it was interesting, and it was interesting that they, well, you know, nobody is safe. No immigrant is safe, no matter how white you are. I guess it doesn't yeah. matter. 
<laughs> because yeah. they'll still, if you're an immigrant, they'll take advantage of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had I had a few thoughts on it, going along with what Mel was just saying that uh, that it was almost like here we go. Uh, jobs are divided ethnically. It's it's like all different ethnicities are you know divided up into okay you know the Cornish and the Germans are in the mines during the day and you know you know this group can do this kind of work and that group can do that kind of work and and it's very very segregated yeah the other thing was uh that we were watching gold mining turning from individual entrepreneurship to corporate control and exploitation under Hearst oh yeah yep this is not Ellsworth in the creek with a a sluice this no. is this is a big operation, and we learn that the Cornish are quicker than the Germans, but complain a lot, <laughs> <laughs> and they also steal. But they're unwilling to work at night, so I guess they have a they they do have some standards. Well, that's gotta good, the, I guess. Got to get those Chinese in there. The Chinese that we can really exploit the Chinese. Right, right. And the only claim that Hearst does not seem to own or control is Alma Garrett's. Yeah. So he all, he controls every single other claim in town. Well, he doesn't quite yet because they make that negotiation with those brothers or that brother. Yeah. So, but it sounds like he in his letter doesn't he indicate that if he doesn't have control, he he's on the way to having control of everything except Garrett. Yeah, he says with the purchase of the claim formerly operated by the Manuel brothers, we will control Save one, the Garrett property. Oh, so okay. So you got like Ellsworth's. I don't know if Ellsworth has a claim that no. Do you that think is it works? Wor- that is worth that is worth anything. Oh, okay. How do we know that? Because he says every considerable deposit now discovered, so it must not be a considerable deposit. And Ellsworth never wanted to make more than he needed. That's right. To to get through the day. Yeah. So because yeah, we don't Ellsworth- we don't know a lot of these. Uh, gold digger people, you know, we just basically Ellsworth and like he's the only one that we've really followed, isn't he? It's true. Yeah. Um the other thing it might one of the things it might be is that they're talking about mining like digging mines and and finding um finding uh veins of gold like Almas and and uh as opposed to they might not consider panning to be worth their trouble because pan mines are just taking what's washed into a creek from the veins and they want the veins themselves. Yeah, they want the the big Yeah. Yeah. So they may not consider any of the the panning people to uh be worthy of their They're not a threat. Yeah. Their concern. Yeah. Yeah, from what I've read, the the water just brought the sediment and therefore the gold like up to the surface of in creek beds, and it was pretty easy to get to. But I imagine all of that's gone now, mm. and now yeah, anything I, that's left is underground and has to be mined with equipment. Mm-hmm. I had thought that it was more erosion that you know the as the um, when it would rain and and such the the gold that was exposed to the air would be washed little bits of it and stuff would be washed into the the creek beds it's probably would just stay there as the water you know 
ran down and some of it would be brought down lower and some of it higher. And that's what I had always thought, but I might be wrong. From, this is from a book called The Real Deadwood. Uh-huh. In the east, streams tend to erode. In the west, they tend to aggrade, that is, to raise the level of the stream bed by depositing sediment. And among the deposits is gold. Hmm. Hmm. So, right. they but the deposits... erode, but in the west, they raise, I guess. Interesting. But wouldn't the deposits come from erosion on the hillsides? You mean, like, originally? Yeah. Like, wouldn't the deposits be coming from, like, when the water is coming down the hillsides and stuff, eroding the hillsides and dropping it into the riverbeds? Mm. Isn't that... I don't know. I mean, I'm... You would think so. That's what I was talking about when, as far as erosion. But I could see, like, in the east, they're talking about the actual water eroding the bed and making the bed, like, cutting into the earth. Mm-hmm. Man, gold is so weird. Like, how, I'm just thinking about it. How did we ever, like, it's just a piece of. Ooh, shiny. It's just a shiny, (laughs) shiny piece of metal. And how did we ever attribute value to it? How did we go from here, I'll trade you this chicken for those shoes, to here, I'll trade you this piece of metal for those shoes? You know? Because because gold, gold has two things that were, are valued or were valued. Um, one is it doesn't tarnish, and two, it's soft enough to work. So people were people were using the money, quote unquote, people, the currency f- to build things. No, no, but people people have always traded. Yes, they trade food and stuff, but they have also always traded things that look pretty. Whether it's beads that someone made, or you know, jewelry or whatever, and gold. Um, can be made into something pretty and it won't tarnish like silver or anything. It'll always stay bright and shiny and it's soft enough that you don't need a lot of, um, a lot of equipment to work it. So mm-hmm. primitive, more primitive, um, technology can, people with primitive technology can get this stuff and do something with it right away and it'll look pretty and it'll look pretty forever. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's what made gold valuable, basically, but it's kind of ridiculous the way we've, what we've done with it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to read this page from The Real Deadwood. Geologically, there's the hill's natural uplift event that exposed so many subsurface regions to plain view and makes it entirely plausible that Dan Doherty in episode 3 could simply spot a rich gold vein in a cliff face. Sooners quickly learned where to look for gold. Streams such as Deadwood Creek emerging from a range of mountains or hills from an apron of deposits beginning at the base of the mountains or the hills. Placers are deposits of sand and gravel containing valuable minerals. Other good spots to find placers are anywhere the current slackens, bends or holes in the stream bed, or behind boulders. Also, the annual summer shrink of waterways out west exposes bars, deposits of gold-bearing gravel. Plaster gold, poor man's diggings. Most of the Black Hills Argonauts were not well-versed in geology or mining technology. They were not deep rock miners who worked far underground. They would come later and still mining the hills to this day. The Argonauts mostly worked almost exclusively in streams and rivers, searching for rich placers. And even without formal training, they learned a lot about gold and how and where to find it. As we are learning today. Yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) 
We heard the term high graders twice in this episode. In a later scene, Mose will say, With thieving bastard Cornishmen, you mean underground in the shafts, high graders, every one of them. High grading refers to the concealment and theft of valuable gold or silver ore by miners. The high graders would conceal the minerals within pockets or lunch pails or orifices, and later they'd attempt to fence it on the black market. As we saw. Yeah. Yeah. So does that guy have to check him. everybody's ass, or does he just have a feeling about some people? <laughs> I have a feeling about that ass. <laughs> it's like when you go uh, when you're at the airport and you're going through the TSA checkpoint, and they're like, randomly, you come over here, please. Yeah, I guess. At the Bella Union, Tessie may have the clap. <laughs> oh. Doc tells Sai he'll look after the Chinese horrors pro bono, but Sai doesn't want to disrespect Asian culture, which treats their women as disposable. Ugh. When Doc threatens to stop treating Sai's white prostitutes, Sai relents. All right, you can you can treat the Chinese horrors. I love the doctor. Mm-hmm. I was confused at the end where he's like, it won't cost you anything, and he didn't really answer him. I'm like, so is he going to let him or what? <laughs> Seemed to. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of ambiguously. He was basically like, yeah, you can do it. I love that. I know what that means, but uh, I want to make sure you know what it means. <laughs> <laughs> um. You know, I just heard this argument about, I don't know, a week ago um, in relation to trying to remember whether it was honor killings or, um, oh, yes, no, I know what it was. It was about um, girls having to, in uh, India, having, in rural India, having to um, sleep outdoors um, when they have their, their menstrual period. And being sexually assaulted and all kinds of bad things happening. And somebody actually made the argument that this is their culture and, and all of that. And we should just respect it. Yeah. yeah. I was so like, stupid. I was like, yeah. Meanwhile, the, the story was about girls trying to change the, in India, trying to change it and, and to, you know, go, trying to change their, that culture and, and, find ways to protect themselves and so forth and this you know these people are coming on oh you know it's their culture and it was like that I, in the I, testament too they used to ship out people like you had to sleep out of the camp while you had your period right and so this it was very timely heard that it's it's self it's a self-serving the argument persists today for some reason involving the Confederate flag, where you have people saying that's a, that's a symbol of slavery and oppression, and others are like, well, that's our culture. Shut up. Shut up. That's so stupid. It is, yeah. And they're like, fine, if it's your culture, we'll put it in a museum, and then that's mm-hmm. you don't have to fly it outside of mm-hmm. government buildings. No. But uh, it's not a reality anymore. You know, if it's about, if that's what it's about, if it's about slavery and oppression, then, you know. Well, you know what? Even if it isn't about slavery and oppression, which I'm not saying it isn't, but even if it isn't, it was definitely a symbol of separation from the United States and starting their own country. So what is it doing on official United States state buildings? Exactly. Mm Mm-hmm. It makes no sense, and anybody with a lick of sense would say get rid of that flag, but... Anyway. Yeah, David Milch says in the Stories of the Black Hills, 
Tolliver's feelings about Wu and the Chinese are much less involved. Someone as spiritually wounded as Tolliver hates not only women, but he hates the Chinese. And Chinese women? Forget about it. The <laughs> truth was that they brought Chinese women in to be prostitutes in Deadwood and literally fucked them to death. They didn't feed them. They just put them in these four-by-six-foot cribs, and they would give them laudanum so they would stop screaming. And when they were dead, they would throw them out. Tolliver doesn't care one way or another about Mr. Wu or the Chinese whores. Mm. Gross. Yep. Uh, I I remember last as we I was seeing this I remember last week saying that I hope that they uh, explore the whole you know situation of the Chinese prostitutes more and I was glad to see that they did. Yeah, yeah. I was wondering you know how everything's going down there you know what life is like for them and morbid curiosity I guess. I wonder if anybody cares for them besides the doctor. Do you know what I mean? Like, does yeah. anyone like? Does anyone in the Chinese community mm. care what happens to them? No. Yeah, like, but they're powerless, though, but do they care? Even though they're powerless, do you know what I mean? You mean the women? Do the women no. care? No, I mean, like, just random people in the community, like... Do they care about their own women? Yeah. I don't... I'm guessing don't, that I, most Some of, do and some don't. Yeah. <laughs> I'm guessing that most of them don't only because the... The society at the time was so stratified, even out west, as we we're just saying. I, ethnically, probably most white people didn't give the Chinese a second thought, and same for um, every other group. They were thinking about themselves, and that was it. Yeah. I mean, Al and Sai have prostitutes. They treat them better, but they're still essentially indentured servants yeah how do they treat them better basically they don't keep them in cages <laughs> that's about it i guess they yeah. they feed them too well they make they, sure they're fed they make sure they have a place a roof over their heads well, do they get paid like do they get their own do they get to keep wages or they just get a, a you know food and a roof over their heads for their services i'm guessing I, it depends on the deal that you make if you can you even probably make have a contract or something I no. <laughs> well, not a contract, but you know, like an agreement. But well, sign this whore contract. Al Al had talked about buying standing. Al had talked about buying the one girl, and Sai has talked about you know buying girls. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, know, but there's got to be an understanding that when you, as a whore, arrive at this whorehouse, that you know what you're. Well, maybe you don't know what you're in for, but. I don't know. I'm guessing some do and some don't. Yeah, yeah. It depends if they're lucky or not, I guess. And I... The real Al Swearingen owned... A th- the gem was actually a theater more than it was a saloon. And he would have some women be dancers and entertainers. And some would take men to private booths and fuck them. Mm. So there were, like, tears. And I imagine... It was like a gentle, like a fancy gentleman's whorehouse. <laughs> That's what it sounds like. <laughs> Just like booths, it's weird. Al and Sai both let the doctor treat their girls too, which is something that the Chinese whores are not getting. Uh huh. They they really are. They're just being used and thrown away. Yeah, it's super grotesque. So let's go to something fun. <laughs> Yay! Fun let's thing. let's change direction because we just dealt with some really heavy shit. We're now we're going outside the gem. Tom Nuttall is elated to receive a package from the stagecoach. 
a Velocipede, Yay! The, gents, the gents bone shaker model. In other words, it's a bicycle. I was so excited when I saw this bicycle. <laughs> I was like, yes. And then when they started betting on it, I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. <laughs> I, I knew you would enjoy this, the, this part of it at least. <laughs> I was just wondering where you would ever use this thing. It's all mud. You won't be able to go. <laughs> said he said make sure you nail the boards down and clear the roads yeah and make sure everybody's inside <laughs> i'm going through <laughs> he basically got one use out of it and you'll never use it again probably oh, i want to see him like a man about town just like bringing his groceries home or something <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i'm gonna use it quite a bit you know that's the interesting thing i would i remember reading a whole deal about how that the bicycle is thought to be the biggest one of the biggest cha- changes to society as far as courting rituals go of the Aww. time because it gave young men and young women mobility that they didn't have before interesting yeah but you can't ride that thing through the mud it's just going to spin in place i don't we know see about that they did I oh, he did that's oh. i think that's why that wheel is so huge to give it to give it the uh i don't know the technical term but to get Attraction. it, he wasn't riding in the mud. He was riding along the like this planks. These planks. right because there were two bets. One was um, across the boardwalk, whether yeah. it was even money, whether he would make it across the boardwalk, and eight to one that he would make it through the. Hang on, did I write down the word? I keep. Well, he rode through the quagmire. Quagmire. Belly Union. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which they didn't show that part of the bet so maybe that'll yeah well maybe the mud gets dried out in places and gets hardened and cracked and if it were to rain then tom wouldn't take his bicycle out (laughs) i i don't but but he made a bet eight to one on uh being able to get through the quagmire so he thinks he's going to be able to get that bike to ride in the mud do you want to you want the details in the bone shaker now or do you want to wait till we get get to the big scene Mm, you can do it now all right yeah do it now the Bone Shaker, the first bicycle to feature pedals on the front wheel, was produced in Paris by Pierre Michaud and his sons in March 1861. This velocipede, or Bone Shaker, as it was later called in Britain, was constructed in much the same way as a hobby horse. Wooden wheels with iron tires and a framework of wrought iron. A long, flat spring supported the saddle and it absorbed a lot of the shocks from the rough roads. The Bone Shaker rider would sit cradled in the saddle with their weight on the pelvic bones rather than on the crotch, as was the case with the hobby horse. Putting pedals on the front wheel may appear at first sight a retrograde step, but it was a far simpler construction and it became popular. The obvious downside was the fact that the rider had to steer and power the front wheel, making the Bone Shaker quite difficult to ride. Every press on the pedals pushes the front wheel out of line. Almost as much effort is put into steering as is into pedaling. The bone shaker also had a brake. This consisted of a metal lever worked by a cord pulled by twisting the handlebars, which caused a wooden pad to press against the rear tire. The bone shaker's design was relatively short-lived, only running in production for a few years. Despite this, its effect on the evolution of the bicycle was dramatic. It established the cycle industry in Britain. Amazing. Cool. Yeah, so... Hard to steer, as you kind of saw when Tom was kind of like struggling to hold on to the front wheel. But we're going to get there. Um, there's a lot of stuff happening outside the gem right now. 
Al tells the chief that even bodiless and inside a box, he's smarter than Johnny. <laughs> a Russian by the name of Blazanov is looking for A.W. Merrick. He's an agent for the Cheyenne and Black Hills Telegraph Company. He's leased space at the Pioneer offices. Blazanov hopes no one has touched his apparatus. <laughs> then we go to Ellsworth, who is looking for guidance from his dog as to whether or not he should propose to Alma. Aww. Yeah. Yeah, and hey, so- Ellsworth. <laughs> And that dog is so cute. It is. Is that the same dog from season one? Yes. That's his dog, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. We don't know the name of the dog, I don't think. No. But uh, just as I do when I talk to my dog, I always interpret his silence to mean support. (laughs) At first it seemed like he's debating about asking Alma to marry him, but then it became so clear that he's just trying to get up his courage to do it. He should have brought his dog with him. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when he proposed. And then if Alma said no, he could, he'd go, it was his idea. <laughs> <laughs> Me and the dog were a package deal. Mm-hmm. But it was actually Charlie Utter's idea, right? Yeah. No. No? It was Trixie's idea. It was Trixie's <laughs> idea. I knew it was somebody else's idea. I was trying to remember who. Trixie. Oh, that makes sense. Trixie's smart boy. Yeah. Ellsworth is probably the sweetest man in town. Like, yes. I don't know. In nature, he's really sweet. Like so, so is Charlie. Yeah, Char- Charlie's more gruff. Like Ellsworth is really like soft and sweet. You know what I mean? Like we've seen Ellsworth be kind of a badass. Remember when Wolcott came to the Garrett claim and he said, mm-hmm. "Get the hell out of this, off this property." Yeah, but I still see him as like a softer guy than Charlie is. Sometimes I still get them mixed up. <laughs> <laughs> really, we're more than halfway through, <laughs> and you're still getting these characters confused. Just those two. Well, Jim Beaver. Yeah, I know from Supernatural, so he's easy to pick out. Martha and William pay a call in Alma. William says, oh. sure smells nice in here. And Alma replies, we had berry tea. Would you like some? And William says, ugh, no. <laughs> I didn't know it was tea. Sh- I didn't know it was tea. I don't want your fucking tea. What a little <laughs> shit. <laughs> I thought I thought women just smelled like that. <laughs> That's probably what it was. He was probably like getting a boner just from stepping in that room. <laughs> Or it smelled like candy. Mm. Uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> but he is a prepubescent boy, and you remember in the carriage he was like looking at those ladies' boobs. So he's into the women's man. Yeah, and oatmeal. <laughs> and oatmeal. <laughs> and gardening. Yes, that's such a and, weird. And bicycles. Boy. Such a strange boy. <laughs> 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 but yeah, it's oh, everything with like uh, what's her face is awkward. Uh, Mrs. You mean Martha? Yeah, Martha. Yeah, that's it. I just called her wifey all the way through. I couldn't. Come up <laughs> I couldn't remember her name. Yeah. yeah. Um, we learn that Mary Stokes, the teacher that Merrick fancied, has fled camp. Martha proposes she teach the camp's children, and then Alma gets up and she becomes just like super bitchy, <laughs> and it's p- pretty great. Um, <laughs> I don't understand her. Why? She was fine right up till that moment. Yeah, because just exactly what she said later, she uh, uh, Martha was was basically suggesting that she take over the education of Sophia, and Sophia, she's already got the man that Alma is in love with, and it's like, do you also want to ta- start taking care of my child as well? Well, she could have just said no. <laughs> yeah, but 
No, I think I'll keep teaching her. Thanks anyway. Well, she's going through some stuff right now. You know, yeah. she's hormonal. <laughs> oh no, she's going. I mean, she's got to figure out what she's going to do. She's not an, exactly in a society where single yeah. motherhood is accepted in her class. She's also got somebody trying to put her in jail, or actually probably have her hung for murdering her husband. Yeah, there's there's some stuff she's going through. <laughs> it was all veiled by what Alma was saying like how she phrased everything about how next time if you were to announce that you were on your way i would be prepared and yeah it was all very it was very yes passive aggressive very bitchy i loved it i thought it was great (laughs) yeah but i mean there were a couple there that were just openly openly hostile oh sure (laughs) alma the claws are out well, we've seen her get this way before, like with EB. She's going to buy his hotel just to throw him out in the street. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, she's – she gets angry. Mm-hmm. And I, I understand why, too. Yeah. I think she's angry most of the time. She keeps herself calm and contained because she's been trained to, but I think she's basically underneath it all. She's angry. And, and I think she's scared. And that's probably why she – will consider Ellsworth propo- Ellsworth's proposal. Yeah. Because it means stability. Um yeah, it means it means a lot as far as for a woman in her position to be able to have a husband when she has that child, um it it would solve a lot of things for her. She's in a very vulnerable place keeping that child. Mm-hmm. It would also mean she could finally get out of that hotel room. <laughs> <laughs> Alice brushes against Al's prick. He <laughs> says, pupil is slow to adjust to a change of light, perhaps owing to morphine. And she says, no, this is really, this was a really weird exchange. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking that she was trying to use some feminine wiles on Al, mm-hmm. but kind of like brushing against him. Oh yeah, yeah. Thinking, that... thinking, thinking that he wouldn't say anything. Instead, he just says it right out. Like, yeah. thanks for brushing against my prick. And she's like, no, I stumbled in the. <laughs> sure. She... <laughs> my my eye my eyes were adjusting to the light. Actually, but it, but the way it was phrased is really weird. Actually, when he just blurts that right out, she doesn't say anything, so she doesn't even bother to deny it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Al's offer is you pay me 50000 to confess that Alma and I used Dan to kill Brom, plus 10000 each to D- Dan and Silas. You sign a document saying that Dan escaped custody en route to New York. Alice has her own terms, 25000 now, but she won't get the other 25000 until the document that I sign is burned or handed over to another Pinkerton agent. This was the document that Al was going to give to Alma as leverage against the Pinkertons and Brom Garrett's family. So they couldn't, you know, so they couldn't try this stuff well she's she's pretty smart she's saying yeah i'll I'll sign that document but you're not going to get your money until i i'm out of camp and the document's gone you won't get the other you won't get the other half of your money right and then this whole thing with dan i I didn't understand what uh like he sat dan down at the end to explain things to him and i was like well don't cut i need to know what what's happening as well (laughs) he's not gonna say the same thing he's not throwing dan under the bus is he well i mean it's He's going to sign a confession saying that he hired Dan, but then Dan is going to, quote-unquote, escape custody. Yeah, but then Dan is going to have, a like, a record or whatever. He'll be wanted, won't he? Yeah. Yeah. So he is throwing Dan under the bus. 
if he's going to do what he just told. Yeah, him. like he could very well go on Alma's side instead. He and considering he's already talked to Alma, yeah. and $25,000 or $50,000 is just not that much money to Al. And I don't think that Dan is in any danger of being arrested if he's still in Deadwood. Yeah. You know, it's one thing to take him back to New York, but if he were to escape custody, they would say, oh, the important thing is we have the confession against Alma. Who really cares about Dan? Mm-hmm. Let him stay in Deadwood. Mm-hmm. We have, we have Alice's confession that Alma did it. That's who they want. They don't want Dan. So. Right. And they don't want Al. No. They want Alma. They want Alma. And uh, I... I am assuming that Al has the more curveballs to throw at everybody before this whole thing is over. Mm-hmm. But Alice is uh, proving herself to be very shrewd. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I hate that bitch. <laughs> Barely shrewd, but, you know, well, we'll get to the meeting mm. with Alma later. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> Merrick shows Blazanoff the table well Bill Hickok was shot at. Rutherford doubts Tom Nuttall's velocipede can navigate the treacherous sinkholes of their camp. They place a wager. Tom will ride his velocipede across the gap of the main thoroughfare in front of the Bella Union, down the boardwalk, on the condition that various obstacles are eliminated from his path. Merrick leaves to ready his camera. I love the, I love the things that Tom Nuttall proclaims about the bicycle. <laughs> or about the people, like, betting on the bicycle. Yes. Yes. I, I just have, like, an event! Question, you know, exclamation <laughs> Point. These guys, yes. like, entertainment. We have a, a camp event. Yes, we have an event. I mean, the real Deadwood, uh, not when it first was built, but probably turned around in like 1880. They had they had theaters where they had shows and concerts. And, I've seen that. Uh, they had masquerade balls and boxing matches. We haven't you know. seen them have any culture, yeah. They they had culture. They had a lot of churches and That's... reading rooms and clubs. You would think and the entire societies. Yeah, from this you would think the entire town was just poorhouses. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like it feels very uncivilized. And you're describing it. It sounds really, you know. We are about a year to two years off from some of that stuff. That's what. But I was... but, yeah. but you know, around this time there was a. A famous uh, theater company that was in town already. So, mm. and and Al had a, Al's saloon was really a theater mm-hmm. where they had things like he had boxing matches and entertainment. So, it's kind of weird not to get that side of things. But mm. there's also, you know, when you're doing twelve episodes a season, you can only show so many things, and they also wanted to make the show more about Vice, I guess. Mm-hmm. Then, yeah. Than things like a masquerade ball, although that would have been pretty great too. Would have been amazing. Oh, Jane in a mask! Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Seth has come home for lunch. Martha is upset. She knows that Seth and Alma were stooping, <laughs> but Seth admits nothing. So awkward. Yeah. Jane is vomiting outside Charlie's freight business. Charlie tells her to check on Joni Stubbs. They can swap stories about losing friends. <laughs> okay. Oh. Uh, bad advice, I feel. Saul proposes a location for the bank, but Seth gets angry because if the bank was near the hardware store, he and Alma would have to see each other every day. Seth speaks to pure common fucking courtesy, and Trixie chimes in, Hey, regarding courtesy, how about the two of you shut the fuck up? 
Mose Manuel enters the Bella Union. He's there to meet with Wolcott, who wants to buy the Manuel claim. The Manuel brothers have a rich claim, but no means to work it or monitor its thievings. So Wolcott is prepared to offer the brothers $200,000, but both would have to sell. One problem, Mose does not get along with his brother. This guy was familiar. He's He was in an episode of X-Files or Millennium. I can't remember. He's been in... Because of his shaky eyes. Because of his shaky eyes. I can't, can't stay still. Yeah, Pruitt Taylor Vince is his name. He's been in a ton of stuff. He's Right right now he's in Heroes Reborn. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. The first thing I remember seeing him in was Highlander, hmm. the TV okay. series. And then he was, I know he was in The Mentalist for a while. He had a recurring role in that. He had, he's been in a lot of stuff. He shows up all over the place. Yeah, he was in the X-Files episode Unruhe uh, with the uh, psychic photographs. That's right. I like that one. He walked around on stilts. Yes. <laughs> bringing, it, bringing it back to stilts. Really? Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. Talked about the howlers. He gave, he gave women lobotomies. That was a great episode. In yes. Highlander, he played a, um, a mentally handicapped um, immortal. Really? Okay. Yeah. Did somebody cut his head off? That's sad. He he actually. Well, I won't tell you how it ends. Uh, no, spoilers for twenty years ago. It um, always ends with the head getting cut off. <laughs> yeah, his head did end up getting cut off. No. But how it happened was a little different, but yeah, he um he had been being taken care of by another immortal, and then that one gets gets killed by somebody who's you know after them and all that and it's an interesting story it's a little different from from most of them but uh he did a very good job i'm reading his imdb page right now does it say what it what he's got with his eyes and so they can't sit still it does but i'm not sure if i can pronounce it <laughs> nystigmus spelled n-y-s-t-a-g-m-u-s nystigmus sounds about right i don't know yeah involuntary eye movement Sometimes called dancing eyes. Aww. <laughs> I wonder if that affects your vision at all. Because I, I tried doing it like purposely. I tried moving my eyes around. And it's no, but like, it's not the same. It's more like a, you're moving your eyes around. And his eye is just twitching. Yeah, there was somebody I went to school with who they, she didn't have this condition, but she could force her eyes to uh, like pupils to wiggle back and forth just like his eyes do. Hmm. She could do it, you know, on command. That's cool. The, then she'd say it would make her dizzy after she she'd do it. <laughs> it's not like we. It's not like every five minutes we're like, do the eye thing, do the dancing eyes. You know, we, <laughs> we, we're, we try to be sensitive, but occasionally, you know, she would do it. Something that makes your eyes kind of look that way, I found, was that if you're if if there's something going by, like a train or you're on a bus or something, and you you're watching out the window, and you your eyes are following like moving things your eyes end up kind of looking like that, where they keep adjusting and adjusting and adjusting and adjusting. Oh, I was watching the the movie, Was it, I think it's a TV movie, Cranford, and they get on a train, and one of the ladies looks out at the train. She's like, I can't look out the train while it moves. It'll strain the ocular nerve. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Must be careful about the ocular nerve. They've got googly eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Googly eyes. Sorry. Sorry, Pruitt Taylor Vince, we're making fun of your eyes. Not really. 
You're a great actor. He he's really done some very good work. Yeah, he's been in just a ton of stuff. Yeah, yeah, he has. Alma leaves her room and knocks on Alice's door. Why are you still here? Alma calls Alice cold and ungenerous of soul, capable of counterfeit, manipulative, treacherous. Alice throws the Bullock affair back in Alma's face, and when Alma goes to strike her, Alice catches Alma's wrist. Get the fuck back to your room, lady. <laughs> that was badass. It was pretty great. She should have smacked Alma back. I bet Alma's never been smacked. Mm. Oh, I wouldn't be surprised if Alma has been smacked. Well, I guess, yeah, by, but, by but, her dad. Yeah. But I liked, I liked the guts of Alma, like, basically just, like, walking in her room and telling her off. Yeah. But I, I, I wish it would have... <laughs> I kind of wish it would have turned into in Alma's favor, though. Oh, that bitch, I just hate her. But, you know, the thing was that when she did that, my first impulse was... Oh, you know, somebody being stupid, you gotta lay your, you know, what good is confronting her and all that. Exactly. But then then I realized she did get something out of the whole thing because up until that moment, she didn't know whether Al Swearingen was lying or not. Mm. She didn't know whether Isringhausen was really doing what Al was saying or whether Al was just making it up to try and get $50,000 out of her and all of that. But Isringhausen, she now knows who the woman is. Early in the season, when Miss Isringhausen was still the tutor, and Alma kind of, Alma was a little nasty toward her for being such a cold fish and being so uncaring and disapproving. And we kind of judged Alma as being a little... A little bitchy, mm-hmm. a little a little uppity. But is it possible that she was seeing something in Alice that she couldn't quite articulate? That's yep. what I'm Some... wondering too. I was wondering if she, if her instincts were telling her there was something wrong with this woman. Exactly. Her. And yeah. it could have very well been something that wasn't included in the story that she just felt, you know. Yeah. Sometimes people will say certain things to you that just seem off. So, or just an attitude, a way of yeah. you know, if someone is watching you and stuff, you can you can kind of feel that, and you know, since she was gathering, trying to gather stuff against her, you know, her her uh, instincts may just have told her that this woman is up to no good. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Instinct is a good word. Because it makes Alma look bad at first. And Alice let down her guard at the end there. And though, you know, Alma was able to see see Alice for who she is. So now she's got a pretty good idea that Alice, that, I mean, you can never trust everything Al says, but that at least he's, some of what he's saying is true. <laughs> this is when I write down, Sophia must be so bored. <laughs> <laughs> The entire camp is getting ready for the big bicycle ride. Richardson needs E.B.'s permission to go watch. The Irish chap who shits his pants and buries his pants under rocks says, Don't disturb his nibs. Apparently, E.B. is in his office with a toothache. It turns out he's nearly choked on a clove-soaked rag that he put into his mouth. Richardson saves E.B.'s life, and for his trouble, E.B. throws R. Richardson out of his office, says, Don't come in here again. Should he have let him die? (laughs) Yeah, I have. He, he is so thankful for Richardson saving. <laughs> Poor Richardson, he he's so adorable. He had a much different reaction to his underling saving him than Al did. <laughs> yeah, I know. 
Yeah. <laughs> and I love the fact that this is that is his private office. I mean, did it look like a storeroom or Yeah. Or- oh. Yeah. I love when he shuts the door and the antlers fall in his head. <laughs> uh, it's almost like Richardson cursed him from afar. <laughs> cursed of Richardson. Richardson's, yeah, Richardson just like makes antlers appear like willy nilly. Yeah. <laughs> That's why, like, I have antler powers. Did you guys notice too during the bicycle race he was holding yes. antler? <laughs> Oh, so man. adorable! I love him. Oh, that, that'd be a that'd be an interesting superpower, <laughs> Matt. Have you ever? This is a, a tangent, but Matt, have you ever played the the infamous games with, with their weird, like unconventional superpowers? No, but I'm thinking it, that if this was a fighting game like Mortal Kombat, Richardson's fatality would be impaling somebody yeah. in his antlers. Aww. Uh, but yeah, that game has like weird powers you never would have thought of, like concrete or video or ne- <laughs> neon. What? And, and, yeah, and like and like then I'm like, oh, antlers! Antlers would be an awesome power. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of bad news that the actor who played yeah. Richardson, Ralph Richardson died this past week. Aww. Yeah. yeah. His name was Ralph Richardson? <laughs> yeah. So they actually called him by his actual name? But Yep. Aww. It wasn't a problem with there being two Ralph Richardsons? I mean, there's like an, yeah. another one in, the, in SAG or something. They have that weird rule where you can only have one person with one name, even though... Yeah, but, I mean, Ralph Richardson was a very famous actor. Brit- oh, I'm sorry. His name is Ralph Richardson. Okay, that makes more sense. Oh. All right. He was 63 years old. 63? 63. What? Isn't that insane? He looks like he's 73 yes! right now in the show. <laughs> oh, my God. Jeez. Mm. I always I find that odd when some people look way older than their age and some people look way younger than their age. It's so weird to me. Oh, wow. Because I first saw it on Jim Beaver's um, Facebook post. This article from Movie Web said that Deadwood marked the start of Ralph Richardson's acting career, starting out as an extra before series creator executive producer David Milch gave him a speaking line, giving birth to the Richardson character. Richardson was a cook at the Grand Central Hotel who had a bizarre fixation on a deer's antler. He carried the antler with him whenever, wherever he went, which he would clutch when he became frightened. That, that's, that's a, a real that, person? That's a real person? No. No? Okay. Oh, you're you're describing the character. the character. Okay. Yeah, the character. Oh, I there. thought you were like saying he was based on a real life person who would clutch an antler. <laughs> <That's scary. laughs> yeah. I was like, aww. <laughs> yeah. Still. Ralph really Richardson was born on July 6, 1952 in Peru, Indiana. He also painted, selling his work through the Fine Art America website. His bio on that website revealed that the actor had 47 different jobs in his working career, including 12 of including 12 of his own businesses while writing five books, a thousand or so poems, 13 songs, three television scripts, and one movie script, which is in production right now. That's amazing. Yeah. And I'll read what Jim Beaver wrote. One of our most beloved comrades from Deadwood is gone, Ralph Richeson, an actor plucked from the crowd of background players and given the chance to create the remarkably memorable character of Richardson, the hotel flunky with a sweet spirit, died this morning in hospice. I don't think there was anyone remotely involved in the show who didn't love Ralph. He was kind, infinitely sweet, and far, far smarter than his character. I will miss you forever, my friend. I raise antlers in honor of your passage. Oh, jeez, the feels. Come on. Oh. 
So a couple of notes here. The Irish guy, he says, uh, he says his nibs, which I found out meant means an employer, a superior, a self-important person. His nibs was common slang among English college students in the 19th century, usually a sarcastic reference to someone seen as aloof or stuck up. As for the origin of the phrase, there seems to be two possibilities. Nibs may derive from knob, which derived from nobleman, or nibs may derive from knob, K-N-O-B, meaning head, as in a swelled head. Hmm. So feel free to use that in everyday language. <laughs> His nibs over there thinks he's so swell. Mm, I love nibs. <laughs> okay. Way better than strawberry licorice. Right, it's some sort of candy, I suppose. Oh, you don't have nibs there? They don't have. I was gonna say, Matt, they probably don't have nibs there. Uh, you guys, or no? I think you guys have Twizzlers. They're just on the East Coast and not on the West Coast. We have nibs, yeah. I don't know. I, th- <laughs> I think I think West Coast is a vine, uh, red vine. You don't know your candy. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sorry. <laughs> get the, get some knowledge on N- that. Nibs are cher- <laughs> cherry flavored licorice. Oh, yes. All right. And they're just like little, like like basically a little short. Yeah, I was gonna say they're short Six. little pieces. Well, I like. Yeah, but I prefer super nibs, which are the full full licorice size ones. Oh, I don't think we have super nibs. Um, and I super I th- nibs. <laughs> <laughs> we have the black ones too. We have the lic- regular licorice flavor ones. That's oh, always yeah. on the lookout. For yeah, we black have those ones. too. You're always on the lookout for the black ones. Yep. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. They're never around. No, we have to send you I don't need chocolate lic- licorice anymore so much. There for a while, chocolate licorice was big. Yes, it was. Yeah. Oh well. And cloves, a still used as a home remedy for toothaches. Does it actually work? Oh yeah, ground cloves, or you could use whole cloves or clove oil. You maybe put it uh, on a cotton ball. Hmm. Yeah. Let's say, let's say ground. Probably- say a ground clove. It says here. First, rinse your mouth with warm salt water and wash your hands. Take a pinch of the ground cloves and apply it between the gum that is sore and your cheek. Your spit does the trick now. Just wait while it mixes with the powder. The pain should subside rather quickly. Interesting. Or you could put a whole clove in your mouth and chew on it, and that'll uh, release the oil. Or, as I said, you could put it um, on a cotton ball and just kind of dab it against your, your toothache. I feel like a whole clove would be too hard to chew on if you had a toothache, though. Well, it says it, as you keep it in your mouth for a few minutes, it starts to soften. Mm. But yeah, it's still no substitute for going to the dentist and getting whatever you have wrong with you fixed. <laughs> That's true. Just, but if you put it on a cloth, just make sure that you don't choke on it. <laughs> Fall asleep and choke on it. <laughs> Dan is disturbed that Al is talking to the chief. Al confides, I have reached an age when I can't keep those thoughts that are best kept silent, silent. So lately, I am talking to this severed head that I paid a bounty on. <laughs> of course. Um, <laughs> Al is explaining his soliloquizing. I I love it. I laughed and laughed. Can we name the Indian's head Wilson? Why? <laughs> oh, like a... Have you not seen like Castaway? Castaway? Oh, I see. <laughs> yeah. I just call him the chief. I did think about that, but chief makes sense. Because isn't that what he calls him? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, he calls him chief. Now, did you expect when Dan put his head against the door the second time that you were going to hear Al talking again? It said Al goes out on the balcony. Yeah. Yeah, Dan I, I was expecting him to talk again, but yeah. Well, he just admitted that he does it so he can continue doing it. Yeah, basically. <laughs> I guess he 
he was caught, so he decided, well, I know he's probably going to listen, so I'd better go out. And... Yeah. Anyways, there was commotion out in Come on, Chief, we'll talk out here. So there's <laughs> stuff happening outside. Dan doesn't see Tom making his big ride, but he didn't want to bet again him. <laughs> that was really cute. <laughs> so Al takes the chief out onto the balcony to watch the spectacle. I like that he opens the box so the chief can <laughs> quote unquote watch. <laughs> yeah. I thought he was going to throw the head yeah, at him same. and try to sab- <laughs> yeah, sabotage him. That's, that's totally what I thought would happen. I thought it would just be like, ha, right in the bicycle's path. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh it's a head. <laughs> A hooplehead either tells Tom he ought to surrender, Tom uses the phrase lay down, or perhaps he's trying to bribe Tom into taking a dive. Either way, Tom rejects what the man proposes by smacking him to the ground. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a quote here that's my quote. Nobody steal it. Oh, that was my quote too. (laughs) All right, you may have it. No, no, you can have it. (laughs) I have a lot of quotes today. (laughs) I have a lot of quotes for the quote. I do too. Meanwhile, Moe's manual wants his brother Charlie to sell their claim. Moe thinks they'll fuck it up, and when Charlie says, speak for yourself, Moe shoots his brother perfectly in sync with the gun that is fired to start the Great Bicycle Ride. Yeah, I've got a note here that, of course, a happy event is used to cover murder. Mm-hmm. Of course. So Tom rides uh, his bone shaker down the thoroughfare, and everyone is shouting, Richardson, in deep concentration, holds onto his antlers. Merrick takes a photograph. Al cheers. Martha and William cheer. Seth shares a smile with Soapy, of all people. (laughs) Charlie smiles. Even Wilcott smiles, despite being a sociopath. And Tom, having completed his ride, is hailed as a conquering hero. That was a cute scene. Everybody was was enjoying themselves. It was so great, except for that brother that got killed. Mm. But it was so nice. Just everybody in town just got together just to watch this. And smile. And smile. And yeah, I like that Wilcott smiled. That was Mm -hmm. nice. Somehow I just... It's like, what is... What is... What am I doing? What am I doing? (laughs) What are these feelings? (laughs) Oh, I missed, like, all the individual reactions. I'm going to have to look at that scene again, because I, I, I saw the bicycle, but I didn't really see any of the individual people that you just mentioned. Yeah, I, this, yeah I missed they're all in there. Is this joy? Ah, oh, disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> I must stop this now. <laughs> well, my favorite is obviously Richardson with the antlers, because that's fantastic. But I do like Seth kind of smiling with Soapy, because they're kind of like... <laughs> Soapy's kind of like the the thorn in Seth's side sometimes, but here they're kind of having a cute moment. <laughs> it's it's great. The whole thing's great because it's nice to see everyone in the town just sort of backing Tom and yeah, hoping that he succeeds. Yeah, you almost got the feeling that the people who voted who bet against him were still ho- kind of hoping that he would succeed. Mm-hmm. No reaction shot from Rutherford who made the bet at the bar. Mm-hmm. Mose reports to Wilcott that his brother had an accident. I'll take that two hundred thousand now. He felt bad about it. I didn't expect him to feel bad about it. Mm. Yeah, Jane Cannery's coming in to the Shazami. That is, she's not here on funny business. <laughs> <laughs> she's just there to check on Joni. Joni reveals that her friends were murdered, and she's sitting. If sitting counts as waiting, presumably for the man who murdered her friends. Jane remarks, "Whoa, that is dark." Yeah. Also, it's very interesting that Joni is sitting with her back to the door. Mm. Yep. I want to talk more about Joni when we get toward the end. Yeah. And about what her what's what's going on in her head right then, but uh, we'll wait on that. 
Ellsworth is at Alma's door. His sorry presentation, he had a wife and a baby girl took by typhus, so his time with them was brief, but he hopes it testifies as a willingness for marriage, and so he's offering himself. And Alma is shocked. She needs... She asks for a brief interval. I expected her to be mad. Why? Oh, uh-oh. Uh, how dare you presume that I would marry you? Yeah, but that's more of a modern <laughs> thought, yeah. maybe. Yeah, I guess. Has Alma ever acted like that around Ellsworth? She likes Ellsworth. She does. Yeah, and but I not feel, as a marriage partner. And I feel like she sees his that his reasons are not uh, underhanded. Like his, she she probably knows that he is asked not out of like sexual reasons yeah he but just didn't... out of out of you know trying to help her save face yeah he didn't explain that was why he was asking no he but just asked which she w- seemed to that's what she, you know no, but she seemed to have that understanding in my he opinion let, he let her know that he knew she was pregnant first yeah yeah but so, then he didn't say i'm proposing so you can save face <laughs> no he didn't say he doesn't, no, need right. to. he doesn't need to in that situation oh my goodness no she knew exactly what he was doing, and it looked like she was going to cry at one point. Mm. I and yeah, she appreciated I, it. She said thank you. Yeah, she, I think like I sincerely think it, said thank you. All the different things that were going on with her, to me, I just it seemed like they were written all over her face. I thought she did a beautiful, beautiful job in that in that scene because yeah. you know there was there was shock and there was mm-hmm. there was kind of like. Like, she would never even consider marrying him under regular circumstances. And there was that sort of a feeling there. Like, no, I would never do this. And then there was also the, oh, my God, this, you know, he's trying to save me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah. A lot has happened to Alma since Trixie came up with this idea that Rich, that Ellsworth proposed. And, you know... I regard you know regarding the Pickertons and so forth. Yeah. So if if if, if this this proposal had come like two days earlier, she may have rejected it outright, saying you know I'm fine. There's no need to do that. But all this stuff, you know, she just got a visit from Martha and William. You know, uh-huh. she this is good timing, I think, for Ellsworth. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the way they filmed it, when he came in and he sat down on the footstool or whatever he sits down on much lower than than she is i have a needlework thing that was done by my great aunt back in like the early 1900s uh it's hanging on my wall and uh, i'll take a picture of it i was gonna say take a photo of it and put it in the group mm. i will um i would have done it earlier today but i figured we should record first and it is of in this particular case it's of a a man obviously courting a young woman and he's sitting on a short little footstool while she's sitting in a chair. And in this case, he's holding her yarn in his hands so she can put it into a, uh, wrap it into a ball from a skein, which is something that you used to have to do, but they're in almost the exact same positions. And that's all I could think of when I saw that. I was like, Oh my goodness. I've, I've seen that silhouette done in needlework from, you know, a long time ago. Mm. Oh. Mm. They both so, did a good job. I thought it was, yeah, it's just, a, it's, it's sad because they're not really getting the partner that they deserve right. or want. Right. But 
it's an arrangement that works, so it makes sense. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. It is night. Seth is stoking the fire. Martha tells him she's grateful for the roof over their heads and for shaping William into a man. But no further demonstrations are necessary on her behalf as other duties claim his attention. Seth pledges he won't cheat on her no matter the state of their relationship, and Martha rejects his sacrifice on her account. She finds it poisonous. She gets angry here. Mm. Yeah. And I really, it's it's so not fair, <laughs> quite honestly. It's really not fair in this particular case. For her to be angry at him. Ah. Uh- I don't know. I mean, I suppose your feelings would be hurt if the the man that you're married to didn't wait for you to get there and fell in love with someone else. Well, it's not like they got married out of love no. or no, they're still married. No, but they're still married. So I can kind of see where she's coming from, but at the same time, I don't think she should be so vicious about it. I think she should give it time and try to forgive him. I don't think that's why she's angry. No. I think she's angry about being put in the role of the sh- the ball and chain, the shackle around his right. leg, right. where he's going to sacrifice mm-hmm. every, you know, he's going to sacrifice his happiness and Alma's happiness so, so she can be the wife and then he'll just be angry at her the whole time. Why doesn't she just leave then? Go back to Matt her. again. Modern times, not the same as back then. Well, I know it's. I know, like she feels crappy about the situation, but that's the situation. And yeah, the reality is she can't leave. So we make the the best of it. You know, I guess I don't know. Don't be mad at him for the way things are. Yeah, that was kind of my point. Is that not necessarily that she has to leave, but you know, this is something she's got to work through and decide yeah. about. But he's. He's done everything. I mean, since she showed up, he's letting her know that he is not, you know, he cut, he stopped the relationship. There's nothing going on between them. And she, I get it that she doesn't want to be the reason for somebody, for other people being unhappy. And she doesn't want to be in that position. Mm -hmm. But he's doing the best he can on that score. Well, I find, I feel like he's trying to be respectable in every way possible. Well, yeah. trying, you know, and he's yeah. just getting punished for it at every turn. Mm. Mhm. Yeah. This this particular, I mean, there've been times in these last couple episodes that I was not overly thrilled about, you know, the way Seth approached things, but this time she's out of line. Mm. Yeah, it was a bit out of proportion to the circumstance. Yeah, I mean, she's mad, she's upset, but she's taking it out on him, and she shouldn't. Well, she may not be that way forever, because right now she's just freshly angry. Right. You know, so sometimes you just, once you work through your anger, you realize, oh, okay, I was probably out of line, I probably shouldn't have said that. Mm-hmm. He was still in the wrong, obviously, like, he shouldn't have done the things he did, but he did them, so you gotta... Mm-hmm. Al uses the mysteriously convenient private walkway to enter Merrick's office. He's got a few items for Merrick's perusal. Al wants the following printed in the Pioneer. Sheriff Bullock would not confirm having met with representatives from the Montana Territory to discuss their offer of annexation. <laughs> and Merrick says something like, is this true? And he's like, well, did he deny Did he deny it? Well, then it's true that he didn't deny it. <laughs> Al wants to know why he wasn't made aware of the telegraph operator's arrival. After all, aren't they, ain't they allies marching? Yeah. 
when Blazanov enters, Al tries to bribe him for those secret communications. How uh, would you like to get your pricks up constantly? Free gratis. <laughs> it's a tradition. It's an American tradition. Welcome to America. <laughs> that, was a, that was a chance to use gratis, and they, they squandered it. I know. That's why I did it. Yeah. I, had to, <laughs> I had to pick up the slack. Thank you. What do we think about Blazanov? <laughs> I like his style. I like his fancy mustache. And his fancy curled hair. <laughs> That's, he, he's a he's a a wild card at this point. He's not going to fit in that town, just like Merrick. <laughs> well, they'll be the perfect roomies then. Yeah. Uh-huh. But uh, I I loved the way Merrick was trying to um, uh, kind of soften up what Al was doing and sort of indicate that no no he's not trying to bribe you and of course that was yeah. pretty much yeah i am <laughs> and uh but it, he's a wild card it's going to be interesting to see what direction he jumps whether he falls under al's influence whether he's bought off by hearst or whether he stays true to his job and gets shot or what mm-hmm. yeah I, I do like how Merrick is trying to put like the best foot forward for the camp, right? And Al's like, "Come get a blowjob." Well, and it's like, "Oh, it's just an expression." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, Merrick has already seen one um, person leave camp because of in the last couple of weeks because of the um, a bad first impression. Mm-hmm. That's true. Merrick doesn't want to lose any more friends. No. Yeah. How is he going to get that uh, ambulatory club going to go if he's losing friends and people are, are riding bicycles now and stilts? And <laughs> it's not fair. Walking is just so passe. Mm-hmm. This actor who plays Blazanov, Pasha Lichnikov, he is Russian. He has been in a ton of things. Yeah, also. yeah, I've seen him. Oh, he's in a show called Big Apple with Kim Dickens. I remember that. Oh, Titus Welliver was in that too. I don't, I don't remember that. I remember watching it when it aired, and it didn't last very long. Hmm. But I'm I'm wondering if Milch was involved somehow. Mm. I'm, trying to, I'm trying to find out. Yeah, he looked very familiar. I I knew I'd seen him in a bunch of stuff, but I don't yeah, know the what. the writer, the pilot of Big Apple was David Milch. Ah, so there you go. Yeah, he's recycling some some of his favorite actors. Charlie visits Bill at the cemetery. He's got Bill's last letter, and he's going to see that it gets delivered. He doesn't know what the fuck to do about Jane. She's never been this bad, but he'll keep trying. I like that uh, he still goes to the cemetery. I was a little worried when he started talking about delivering the letter by hand when possible that we're going to lose him for a while. Mm. When he goes off to deliver the letter, if he finds out where she is, I don't think it should be all that difficult to find out where she is. How do you find out where anyone is back then? Well, she's Wild Bill Hickok's widow, and she was in Chicago, I believe. Yeah, but it's basically word of mouth, like, where someone is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's left the camp before. Yeah. To deliver his mail, and he always comes back. But if he has to go all the way to Chicago or someplace, he could be gone for a long time. I don't want Charlie gone for a long time. Uh, Neither do I. Alma spies Seth out of her window. Seth kicks a man who's asleep at a table in the street. <laughs> I think this is Soapy, actually. <laughs> <laughs> He's always picking on Soapy. But but for a brief moment during the bicycle ride, 
they shared a smile. Yeah. But now he's back to like, get out of here, you drunk. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing out here? At a table in the street. Yeah. That's weird. So weird, but... Charlie Manuel's corpse is under the supervision of Mr. Lee. Moses feeling guilty about killing his brother. Wilcott suggests he go to the Bella Union, collect his 200000 Doc is looking at one of the dead Chinese whores, and he goes up to Wilcott and tells him, Disgrace upon your soul! You tell him, Doc. Wilcott's... What's up? He said, you tell him, Doc. Yeah. Wilcott says, No remedy is discovered yet sovereign against sentimental remorse. And he yells at a Chinese whore, Close your eyes! <laughs> so he's back to being a jackass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, he's dealing with women, and he's always a jackass when he's dealing with women. Oh, yeah. A knock at the Shazami and Wilcott enters. He doesn't know what he's come to do. Jonius slams a bottle of Basil Hayden bourbon, official whiskey of Hooplecast, against Wilcott's face, and she scampers off to her bedroom. Okay, so my question is, what is motivating Joni this episode? Is she waiting to die? It seems then like it. Seeing, then seeing Wilcott unsure of himself, decides she's stronger than him, decides to live... Yeah. Or is she just unsure of what she wants to do and until she sees him again? She doesn't know if she really wants to live. Like, what's, been that the, what's going on here? Could have been that the rage just bubbled up when she saw him. Mm. I almost got the feeling that for most of the episode and the previous one, she's been so... she She's had so much happen in this last little while that she was just kind of numb to everything. And if, and she was to the point of saying, just whatever's going to happen, just let's make it happen and be done with all of this nonsense. But then seeing him, it's Joni and it, you know, and everything came out. You know what I mean? She kind of came back to herself. Okay. I, I don't have the right words tonight to well, describe it, but. I liked Mel's interpretation that she just, the anger mm-hmm. yeah. bubbled up because sometimes people, when they have something to hate, when they're angry, that's enough to kind of sustain them and carry them through. And they, with the, with their anger, they can actually operate. But if you don't have that, then as, as you said, Carol, she's just numb and kind of floundering and... Emotionally exhausted is what I, you know, right. where... That mo that time when you just have have had so much happen to you that it's just you just can't deal with anything right then and you're just sort of wandering around. But after you kind of go through that, a lot of times you can gather yourself together. And and I wonder if she kind of what Mel was saying that seeing him kind of brought the anger back and it and it just She'd had enough time to kind of um, come back to herself a little bit. I also think when she asks, do what you, well, when she tells him, do what you came to, and he says, I don't know what I came to do, that makes her even angrier. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like, what do you mean you don't know what you want to do? Mm-hmm. Especially since she's been anticipating it for so long. It's almost like, I know what you're here to do. What are you talking about that you don't know what you're here to do? It's like own up to who you are. Mm-hmm. Like you can't, you can't even admit what you want to do. Like, mm-hmm. oh, she's just. So did he go there to kill her or what? I don't know. I don't know either. It's funny. It's kind of funny in a way because she was like, you know, you came here, do what you got to do. You killed my friends. Wait a minute, you killed my friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Smash. <laughs> and I think maybe 
she sees him as really pathetic in that moment. He is pathetic. Mm-hmm. Well, he says, I don't know what I came to do. And she's like, God, you really are beneath me. Like, I'm I'm sitting here, I'm waiting for you to kill me, and you're not a, you're not a strong person. You're a weak person. I'm stronger than you. Smack. Boom! Take this yeah. bottle on your face. But I mean, she's you, you motherfucker, still, goodbye. She was still scared, though, because she ran off well, yeah. herself away, but... Yeah, but I think in that moment, so she found like courage. Mm, yeah, because she saw how all, how weak he was, and her. she's not stupid. Mm-hmm. I mean, the guy is dangerous. Yeah, she doesn't even know how he killed people. Um, because she's not was... stupid, but she still sat with her back to that door. <laughs> I think because she was just she was spent. No, I know, but yeah. that's not smart. <laughs> Well, but I think she knew what she was doing. Yeah. I mean, it, it do you might think she knew? Do you think she knew about... Well, she did know about his not liking women looking at him. So maybe that was her way of playing him. I'm not sure she knew that because... Well, yes, yeah, she did. Because he did that with the, all the whores. He had them all ter- facing the wall, remember? Well, that's true. That's true. You're right. You're right. So do you think that's why she had her back on the door? Because she knew that... He, He'd rather people, women don't look at him to see what he really is, I guess. It's an interesting point. I I mean, I had assumed it was more what was implied by, you know, Bill Hickok for the first time in his life sitting with his back to the door and being murdered immediately. Like a defeatist attitude. Yeah, it's, yeah. you know, she was waiting for him to come kill her. But, and she may have... She may have been in an emotional and mental space where she thought that she was okay with it until she saw him and realized that she wasn't and would rather hit him over the head with a bottle and, you know, get away. It was great. Yeah. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah. I'm I'm glad that Joni is kind of coming back. I was worried for Joni. I was worried for Jane. I was wondering if Wolcott was going to make it through the scene alive. Well, he staggers from the Shazami, and Jane asks him, Did you kill that girl at the Shazami? And he says, No, and if I'm lying, you can find me at the Grand Central Hotel. (laughs) It's not quite what he says, but I'm not going to say the entire thing in case it's somebody's quote. I've got it written. I've got the whole thing written out. Something disparaging about EB. Yes. <laughs> I love that. I love that yeah, line. It was great. Yeah. All right. So for your predictions, Carol predicted that people need to take responsibility and act like grown-ups, put away childish things. Mm, I don't know. <laughs> mm, Did that I think that's pretty much what this was about. Um, although I... Who are we talking about? Huh? Who are we, are we talking, talking about? Because, like... Because Everybody. they put out that bicycle. That's a childish thing. Yeah. <laughs> That's about the only childish thing in it. Um, there was two kids. I'm surprised in a way. Like when I said last time about how the titles on these shows are obtuse, to say the least. Um, mm-hmm. This whole episode, as far as I could see, was all about people confronting other people, which could be looked at as finally taking responsibility for things and not avoiding everything. But everybody is confronting everybody else all the way through this. It starts with Al confronting Bullock. Mm -hmm. 
the doc confronts Sai about the Chinese prostitutes. Um, uh, Dave very gently confronts Al about him talking to himself. Who's Dave? Dan. Oh, Dan. Dan. Sorry. (laughs) Dan. I'm terrible with names. That's all right. Um, Dan, thanks. Um, Ellsworth finally asks um, Alma to marry him, which that's been that's been a couple episodes in the making. Mm-hmm. The wife confronts Alma. Alma ends up confronting the wife instead. The wife is there to ask her about you know doing the thing, but Alma ends up confronting the wife. The wife confronts. Uh, Seth about what's, you know, she's feeling about all of this stuff. Who else? <laughs> it well, goes I, on and on. Well, and we on. already went through all of that, right? So, right. But yeah. I think the, I think the, the big thing though is really Alma. She goes to Mrs. Ringhouse and she tries to smack her. Alice says, you know, that's, you're having a fit of temper. And then Alma kind of realizes, like, I, it's time for me to act like a grown up and ma- marry this man. Like, she's, I have to do what, you know, I have to start taking responsibility and really think about what I want my future to be. And the big one, Dan confronts Al about talking to a head in a box. <laughs> yeah, that, a head in a box is a childish thing. Yes. Well, keep your, it's a toy. Basically. It's like a toy, yeah. But they're and all... Al, Al admits that he's okay with the keeping childish things around. Well, but a lot of these things are things that people haven't been dealing with. And they are. Like everybody's dealing with stuff in this episode that you know they mm-hmm. wouldn't, they haven't necessarily been willing to to confront and deal with. Yep. So I was kind of amazed at just how many pieces of business was were going on between all the different characters. So if you replace childish things with petty things, it kind of makes more sense mm-hmm. because people have been acting pretty petty lately, mm-hmm. and now everyone's sort of being called on it. Yeah. Mel predicted that someone is going to pass out toys and everyone's going to slink off to the forest to play their old-timey games. Oh, they, sl- they just slunk off to the main road. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> they slunk. Cup and, and a ball. They slunk while cheering and yelling. And oh, <laughs> It was the one big toy. You know, it's like, you know, you can ask Santa for several small toys or one big toy. Well, the town got that one big toy. <laughs> <laughs> and only one person gets to play with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, otherwise you'll get whipped if you touch it. <laughs> yes, must touch. Matt predicted that Seth has an antique doll collection, and someone tells him, "Dude, you gotta get rid of these dolls, or no one doing. will take you seriously as sheriff." He was doing that. He was remember the he was stoking the fire. The dolls were in there. <laughs> oh, he's <was> burning them. <laughs> Point. Getting rid of his childish things. <laughs> <laughs> he was stoking the fire while she was berating him now in our last recording i neglected to ask you for a miscellaneous prediction so i did it offline or rather i did it off recording and i asked the hoopals to predict when it would become night in the camp what time stamp when it's when it's night so carol said at one minute because she was predicting a nighttime episode which we've had before she you thought you thought he was trying to trick you yeah pretty much <laughs> hmm. mel predicted 41 minutes in Matt said 37 minutes. Well, the actual timestamp was 36.36. Oh, wow. I was so close. 
So we have to give it to the person who watched the episode ahead of time oh, and man. pretended he hadn't seen it. We got to give it to Matt. I even thought of that when I sent it in. I was like, man, if this is anywhere near, like, if this was really close, I'm going to be accused of. <laughs> but I guessed, like, another time. So why would I make myself lose on purpose? Mm-hmm. We uh, it, Maybe I watched it alone without you. Well, that's what I assumed. <laughs> All right, we have one piece of... <gasps> what? I know, right? She's sharpening her knives. Insert the uh, knife sharpening sound effect. And I th- <laughs> and I, th- I considered sending out like a, a another message, a reminder, but then I was like, you know what? We can This episode will be shorter, so that's fine, too. <laughs> It'll be a nice change of pace. So yeah. uh, there's a letter in the Skype. So our one and only feedback is from Harold. Harold! Mel, I'd like you to read this one. Mel just ran away. Damn it. (laughs) Matt, why don't you read this one? Okay. This episode had one of the darkest moments of the series so far. First operation, and also one of the lightest, Tom Tom Nuttall's bike ride. The brief scene of Hearst's mining operation with the laborers getting showered and undergoing full body cavity searches is a reminder that the Wild West was not all about freedom and liberty, at least not for long. The replacement of prospectors with day laborers is not a story that is often told because it is a lot more interesting to tell stories about people whose hard work and savvy led to great fortunes than to tell stories about people who work hard for someone else just to eke out a living. I hate to get too political, but no one should forget that when people today pine for rugged capitalism, they conjure images of people like Hearst, but in reality... For most people, it meant standing naked waiting for, your, waiting for your boss to stick his hand up your ass. Anyways, what a comparison there is between the Heartless Hearst operation and the Garrett one, where Wolcott was allowed to wander around and Ellsworth had conversations with the dog. How long can it be before Hearst crushes the Garrett operation? Tom's bike ride is the complete opposite of the Hearst mining scene, with the whole community, even Wolcott, outside to watch the, and enjoy this frivolous moment. It is such a wonderful moment of good cheer that I had totally forgotten about the guy who used it as a distraction to murder his brother. I give us nine velocipedes out of ten. <laughs> Velociraptors out of ten. Aw, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what if he had been riding a velociraptor instead of a velocipede? A velocipede is like a velociraptor with a, th- uh, a, a hundred legs or whatever it is. <laughs> Well, thank you for the feedback, Harold. Yes, you will escape my, my sharp. Is that why you ran away? You <laughs> ran away to get a prop. Uh, you have to get prop. <laughs> I ran away once to get a bell, so I admire, I admire it, and I respect it. Thank you. Thank she you. got a knife and a fork, though, not two knives. <laughs> Are you planning to eat him? I, well, or not no, him? I, the other no, people? Yeah, I'm not. No, yeah, I'm eating the the people that didn't send it to you back. I, I assumed you'd get two knives instead of. I'm a fork very and a hungry. Knife. You know, these podcasts last a long time. I get really hungry. <laughs> that was very well said. What Harold, what Harold wrote about um, contrast. N- yeah, the contrast, and also just the boss's hand up your ass. Yes. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, f- fortunes are not just the. They don't come out of the ether, you know. Yeah. Right. They're built on the backs of workers. Yep. And we should respect that. Yep. Not exploit them. Yep. It's a shame that being decent is being political. Yeah. All right, time for ratings. Uh, Carol, why don't you go first? Okay. 
Um, I really, really like this episode a lot. Um, I, it's, it's a standout for me. I, I don't have anything bad to say about it. I'm going to give it 9.5 out of 10 difficult confrontations. Okay. Matt, what's your rating? Uh, I liked it. There was entertaining scenes. It was about on par with the previous episode, I thought, uh, which I also liked. Uh, I'll give it a 9 out of 10 old-timey bikes. Aww. <laughs> so you don't like those and... old-timey bikes, eh? <laughs> <laughs> old-timey bikes. Simpsons reference. <laughs> and Mel. Uh, yeah, I liked it also. Um... Oh, I just find those scenes, though, between uh, Seth and Martha to be so fucking awkward. <laughs> it really bothers me, but <laughs> still a good episode, though, overall. Uh, I'll give it 9 out of 10 prick brushings. Nice. Uh, I like this one quite a lot because I love the bike, the bike business, <laughs> the business with the bike. <laughs> it's it's goofy and it's fun. I And I also love seeing Joni come back, you know into herself and the the mining operation stuff is really disturbing oh and the alice alma confrontation you're right though martha and seth are super awkward it's the worst it's it's not great um but i really enjoyed this one so i'm giving this one nine and a half out of ten bottles of basil hayden bourbon smashed against faces official whiskey of hoople cast Carol, who's your character of the episode? Um, there's a lot of good ones. Uh, pretty much everybody had something good. I'm going to go with Ellsworth, though. And the reason I'm going to go with Ellsworth is because every time he showed up on the screen, I was just so happy to see him. Yeah. We haven't seen him for a little while. I'm going to skip ahead, and I'm going to give it to Ellsworth, too, because he he's such a great guy. Yeah. And he's stepping up. He's hauling that boulder. Yeah. I like and he's got a cute dog, too. So that gets points. So, all right, that's two votes for Ellsworth. Um, Matt, what say you? I'm going to give it to Tom Nuttall for bringing joy to the camp. <laughs> and, and to me. And to you. <laughs> and uh, for, for uh, being boisterous and, uh, and uh, bragging. I guess it's not bragging since he didn't do it yet. What's the word for when you're... Bigging yourself up before you've even done something. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, always being kind of boastful. Yes. And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and, and, he, and he backed it up. <laughs> yeah, he did. <laughs> hey, we didn't mention the fact that uh, that Al had something nice to say about him. About uh, Apparently he was quite, uh, quite the guy back when, at some point in his life, he, he was an imposing person, according to Al. Hmm. Or so he tells Chief. I thought that was interesting. I heard something about Leon Rippey, but I don't want to repeat it if it's inaccurate. Okay. Do it anyways. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, all right. I, I got it here, but I can't get this stupid pop-up out of the way. So the actor who plays Tom, Leon Rippey, mm-hmm. After a string of high school and college plays, he founded and operated two theater companies while also performing for a time as a ballet dancer. Aww! That's great. (laughs) He also experienced traveling with the circus and working with cattle before he went on to act in numerous television series and films. Wow. Yeah. 
He was a dancer. That's awesome. Mel, are you going to tell us your character? Sure. Um, well, when Elmo was being all badass and, like, confronting Isringhausen, I was like, oh, yeah. But then when Isringhausen, like, kind of pushed her away, I was like, oh, she's kind of not, she's kind of losing this episode. <laughs> so I'm going to, is it, can she, I? She got a marriage proposal. I know, she did, but she's got to think about it. I don't know. Can I give it to the bone crusher? <laughs> Or whatever the bone no. rattler, the, bo- the the bone shaker. <laughs> yeah, that one. <laughs> no, but you can give it for Tom for riding on the bone shaker. No, I've, I I would not ride something on the bone crusher. <laughs> I guess I guess I I'll give it to Elma though because she has been given some options and she has found out things about people this episode. And I just I liked I guess yeah I like that she had realizations and stuff. So all right, well good. Okay, quotes. Mel, I'll let you go first. Those who doubt me can suck cock by choice. <laughs> it's not can. They, they do. Oh, they do. Do suck cock. Oh, sorry. Suck cock by choice. I apologize. I didn't get it right. I apologize. <laughs> Why don't you say it again? Uh, where was it again? <laughs> Those who doubt me suck cock by choice. <laughs> well, I, I'll quickly go and do my Tom Nuttall quote. Yes, please. That is a lay down you propose. Corruption won't never breathe stinky on my bicycle. <laughs> my favorite quote. <laughs> uh. <laughs> they want him to throw the race. That's what it sounds like. Yep. Either that or surrender. I just love that breathe stinky. <laughs> breathe stinky on my bicycle. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> oh. How do you learn to write like that? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Carol, quote. If you find me untrue in any particular, I'm staying at the Grand Central Hotel. Who runs that joint? A grotesque named Farnham. <laughs> you ain't lied so far. <laughs> That's uh-huh. great. I love it when anyone just insults Evie. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yep. It's a cheap laugh, but always good. Hey. It's always hey. deserved. Yep. Yep. Matt? Dead and without a body, you still outstrip him in, for intelligence. Yep, I got that one too. <laughs> Here's a quote from Al. Someone from Farnham, that cunt with the long kraut moniker. <laughs> Carol, you have more quotes? Sure, I've got tons. Um, what did you know about me, Bullock, when we first met? No concern for feelings, huh? That you were a killer. Certain facts show in the mug. Mm-hmm. Matter Mel? Did you want to do this one together? Ooh, do it. We're starting here. Yes. Okay, go ahead. I, I, I am okay. playing the part of Alice and Matt is playing the part of Al. Okay. Good okay. morning. Good morning, Mr. Swearingen. Excuse me, change of light. Pupils slow adjusting. Hope that don't owe to morphine. No. Anyhow, thanks for brushing up against my prick. <laughs> <laughs> and then Dan says, you want to brush again in my prick? <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's pretty great. This is an exchange between Jane and Joni. Maybe I will have a fucking drink just for sociability's sake and because I'm a fucking drunk. <laughs> well, what's your preference? That it ain't been previously swallowed? <laughs> so witty. Um, Dan says, uh, the Indian have an opinion? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then Al gives that look like... <laughs> yeah, he, he just <laughs> stepped over the line there, Dan. <laughs> Uh, this is Merrick and Tom. May I have time to ready my camera, Tom? Uh, get going. I'll make fresh plates and a new stop bath. 
whatever the fuck that means. <laughs> <laughs> I like that he just like pushes him away. Get out of my face. <laughs> oh, America's such a nerd. You nerd, you photography nerd. <laughs> I was gonna say, yeah, he's a photography nerd to talk about aperture and shutter speed. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Do you wish them to, then to take Sophia under your care as well? As well as whom, Mrs. Garrett? Why, Mrs. Bullock, as well as your son. Whom else would I mean? Ooh, the claws were out. <laughs> she doesn't know how to start a fire. <laughs> um, okay, here's some Richardson uh, goodness. Mr. Farnham, are you there? I need your permission, Mr. Farnham. What's killing you? What's afflicting you? <laughs> are you saved, sir? <laughs> Your fluffy hand was down my throat. May I go out and watch the bicycle? Oh, you know, I should have picked him as my character of the week. Rest in peace. <laughs> you can if you want. You can change. I will let you change this one time only because it's Richardson. Yeah. And I approve of the change. Hey, God, this is so <laughs> nice. Oh, except, of course, he did save EB's life. Yeah, which kind of is lame. Oh, they both lose. Alma and Richardson. Duh. <laughs> I only have one other quote, and it's Al during the bicycle ride. <laughs> Go on, my son! <laughs> that was so not like Al. I don't know. It's yeah, kind of funny. He got, it, he got into the spirit of things, just cute. like Wilcott did. Yeah, yeah, I think he was just, he was feeling, you know. Just... I'm going to say this one last one from Ellsworth, since he was my character of the week. And keenness to my shortcomings, don't blind me to seeing a right that when a boulder needs hauling, I will haul the boulder. Alma is a boulder. Aww. No, I think the kid is a boulder. <laughs> Either way. Yeah. So in two weeks, we will record episode 21, Amalgamation and Capital. Oh, that's a lame title. <laughs> it's going to be all about... Uh, like Capital spelled how? Capital, like, um... Like money? Like money, yeah. yeah. It's gonna be all about Trixie learning more of that bank business. That's <laughs> <laughs> eh, gonna be Hearst. I think he's coming to town? The bank is gonna open up. Or not open up, but they're gonna really start into the bank thing. Yeah, I think it's it's gonna be about the businesses and the bank and the mining. I think it's gonna be a lot about the mining and trying to get Garrett to sell and selling things. Could, but, could amalgamation know. not have to do with them being annexed? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Also, also two two characters are going to amalgamate into one. They're going oh. to fuse together. <laughs> fuse together in like a sort of a super powered... Yeah. Al, Al and uh, Seth... The Chief's going... head! <laughs> Al's, Al's going to become two-headed! He's going to fuse with the Chief's head. With like head. a decomp- half-decomposed Indian Chief's head. Yeah. Yes. And he's going to become super powered. Yes. Okay. Yeah, you don't have Should to put my name on that prediction. <laughs> I won't. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, for for a miscellaneous prediction, how about this? How many individual scenes are going to take place in a saloon? Oh, good grief. And there's three saloons. The gem, the Bella Union, and the number ten. Five. Ten. <laughs> how many scenes are there usually in this in the show, in an episode. I don't know, it cuts back and forth, doesn't it? Yeah. What do we consider a scene? Uh, I think if two people are having a conversation and it cuts away and it goes back to them, that's still the same scene. Okay. Okay. 
And I also think if they're having – if they're in Al's office, though technically it's like above the saloon, I, I'm going to say it doesn't count. Oh, OK. I'm say the saloon is in the vicinity of the bar or – OK, four then. <laughs> only four? OK. All right, five. Only five? Okay. (laughs) Five. Mel said ten. Carol says... I'm thinking about how many there were in this episode. There weren't all that many, really, in this episode. Um, So much happens in their offices. Still the saloon, though. No, he said it doesn't count. I'm not going to count it. Three. Because it seems like a separate... Oh. Stop changing your numbers. I've already locked it in. It's ten. (laughs) I'm... (sighs) I'll go with six. I think that's high, but I'll go with six. Okay. Well, if you disagree about what counts as a scene, well, we can argue about it. Later. Oh, I don't think I'm going to argue, but... <laughs> I would hope not. That'd no. be really stupid. No. I, I think I'm just going to go with whatever you deem a scene. That seems that seems good. Yeah. Defer to me. Yeah. I I don't have a problem with that at all. Anyone want to plug anything before we go? Uh, I will plug uh, Defenders Podcast, where we talk about uh, the Netflix Marvel series and what we make podcast, which is about Terminator. Cool. Very good. McKinley Cast, we have recorded another episode. (laughs) Yay! Yay! And one that I hadn't realized wasn't out. Um, We had recorded months ago, um, did get out fairly recently. So, um, and hopefully we'll record the last few episodes fairly soon, but, um, we are still recording. So check out McKinley cast of freaks and geeks podcast intro. Kit. I think you probably only have like three or four left, right? <laughs> I know. And I'm hoping it doesn't take us another six months or a year. <laughs> mm. We're a silly group. Yeah. And I guess I'll plug intro to X. I was on an episode called N Ami. And Ami? And Ami. It's French for my friend. Yeah, but it ends but up... It, st- but it also means sounding like enemy. Right. Oh, it's very clever. <laughs> yes, that's why I thought it was cool. Oh, and I was on um, Sue Watches Buffy talking about Spin the Bottle. Oh, one of my yeah. I'm, very favorite Angel episodes. I'm, I missed sending feedback for that. I wanted to... Oh, well. And we talked about slouching toward Bethlehem and supersymmetry, too, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> All right, so as usual, you can find us on the interwebs. Search for Hooplecast on Twitter, at Hooplecast. Facebook, find us on the group. We have uh, we have discussions there. We post random shit. It's fun. Go there. Go to iTunes. Leave a five-star review. Send feedback to Hooplecast at gmail.com. As always, our website is Hooplecast.com. Tell your friends. We'll see you in two weeks for Amalgamation and Capital. Until then, goodbye. Bye-bye. Fuck y'all. <laughs> Yo, fuck I'm you. Riding, <laughs> I, I'm I'm riding my bicycle here. What are you doing? <laughs> fuck you, get out of the way. <laughs> ding, ding. <laughs> and now I have to think about what my end song will be. Will it be bicycle related? Bicycle. 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 <laughs> I want to ride my... Bicycle. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a song. Yeah, it's Queen. Queen. Yeah, it's Queen. <laughs> oh, all right. All right. <laughs> Yeah, it's a. Pr- you know what? I think when I was looking up songs and I was looking for songs with bicycle in the title, I found that one. I listened to it. and I'm like, oh, this is so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if I know about it, it's a really popular song. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Or else it's 
it's from someone no one's ever heard of. One you could also other. do Fat Bottom Girls. Which they're also riding bicycles. <laughs> Which they're also riding bicycles. <laughs> it's also another Queen song. <laughs> Get on your bikes and ride! <laughs> <laughs> Alright then. <laughs> Delightful. Shows I care Every turn of the pedal Cleans the air Green in the green I'm saving the planet Just like my friends Dale, Sean, Toby, and Janet No greenhouse gas A tiny carbon footprint Up your ass No reaction shot from Rutherford, who made the bet at the bar. Mm-hmm. So. Oh. Hey, speaking of childish things, guys, uh, Matt's just hauling out his Transformers and transforming them right now. <laughs> <laughs> I am not. You are so. <laughs> Stop it. You're making a lot of noise. <laughs> <laughs> Mose reports to Wolcott that his brother had an accident. <laughs> Mel predicted 41 minutes in. Method. Ma- <laughs> I'm not a method. I kicked that habit years ago. <laughs> Matt said 37 minutes. Okay. Just a moment, please. Stop patting the kitty's butt. All right. <laughs> Matt, what's your rating? Uh, I liked it a lot. There was some nice moments. 
There's interesting cuts. All right, all right, all right, all right. Hold on. <laughs> eliminate, eliminate the. Uh, Sorry, the cat. Whatever was, you're doing. The cat was ripping at the chair. <laughs> oh, wow, Carol, you said nine point five, right? Yeah, nine point five. All right, Matt, what's your rating? Uh, I liked it. Anyone want to plug anything before we go? Sorry, <laughs> Sorry we're what? hearing. We heard the cat barfing, and we don't know where he is. So. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> Corruption won't never breathe stinky on my bicycle! <laughs> <laughs>